I, Danny, take you, Unji. I, Danny, take you, Unji. To be my wife. To be my wife. I do promise and covenant. I do promise and covenant. Before God and these witnesses. Before God and these witnesses. To be your loving and faithful husband. To be your loving and faithful husband. Forever can never be long enough for me. So what you guys just saw was the first 30 seconds of um, our wedding video for me and my wife, Unji. Um, that was a few years ago, and we had a friend of ours beautifully capture and then edit and, and, and put together a five-minute video of our, what, roughly 12-hour day. And it allows us, it's, it's a great resource that we have. Like, we didn't actually expect that we had to, to get it. Uh, and he gave it to us as a gift. And now we have a video to look back on to remember our special day and, and all the fun that we had in our wedding, which, frankly, you just kind of, like, forget because it's all, of a blur, it's all a blur on that day. And as a married person here at Cornerstone, like, we're somewhat of the minority because most of us are a little bit younger and haven't yet gotten to that step yet. Um, for me, as a married person, I get, like, very frequent questions from the single folks at church, and typically these main three are the ones that come up very often. Firstly, how did you meet? Second, how did you propose? And lastly, can I see your wedding video? (laughs) These are the things that everyone kind of wants to know, right? Like you meet a married couple, um, whether it's, you know, a few years or 30 or 40 or longer, and you want to know these things, like, how did you meet? What was the proposal like? What was your wedding day like? Can we, do you have pictures? Can we flip through a photo album or on your computer? Or do you have a video so that we can kind of uh, get a glimpse into what that was like? And, and, you know, the reason why we talk about those things is because it's, it's, it's exciting. It's, it's nice to hear. It's like a, it's a sweet story. And then it also leads us to kind of like daydreaming a little bit about what that might be like for us, right? Like the next, so like I can't wait for mine because I, I hope that it's going to be like this and this and this. And, you know, like I imagine my wedding to be X, Y, and Z. But let me tell you something that every married person in this whole room, and I would even say probably this whole universe would agree with, that good starts to relationships, great proposals, And great wedding days say absolutely nothing about whether the marriage will be great. There is zero correlation to the sweetness and the fondness of of your wedding day with any sweetness or fondness to your marriage that may come. If you were to watch the full, full version of the wedding video that I just teased you all with, you would know absolutely nothing, zero, about whether Unji and I are actually doing well today whether we've actually experienced the fullness of marriage, and whether we're happy and growing. In that introduction, you heard me say the following words. I, Danny, take you, Unji, to be my wife. I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband. Now, while I made that promise on the spot, it was actually impossible for me to fulfill that on the spot. I, you just can't, right? And the, so the fulfillment of the promise or the wedding vows doesn't happen at the wedding. It happens through a lifelong marriage. You know how people always say that like uh, cars are the worst investment, like they're the worst return on your money because as soon as you, you, know, you pay the dealership, you get the keys, you drive it off the lot, and then the value of it plummets. I actually think weddings are the worst return on investment. 
Much worse than cars, because the amount of time investment, the energy investment, the stress investment, and then, of course, the money investment will have actually zero correlation to the return of a happy marriage. It's a terrible investment. So for those of you who have not gotten married yet, don't worry about the money and stuff. That's not what's going to sustain you. Today, in the last sermon of our, of our month, February month-long uh, sermon series that we've had called Tangled Hearts, um, I want... I'm going to title this uh, sermon, Marriage Thriving for Today and for the Long Haul. And basically what I want to do is I want to open up God's Word to see how it will not just inform cognitively, not just inform our minds and and the way that we understand marriage, but we're asking and praying and and trusting in the Lord that His Word will actually start to reform our hearts so that our relationships are either future marriage, we haven't gotten there yet, or our current today marriage that we're living in will thrive for today and for the long haul. Because the reality of it is, my friends, is like romantic feelings, uh, uh, good looks, good sex, fun, these things will not sustain you. These things do not keep a marriage happy and thriving, but the word of God can. Let me just say that. It sounds obvious, but let me just say with full boldness that while Nothing on this earth can sustain a happy, thriving marriage. The word of God can. And so what I want to do is just dig into God's word to see how it can feed us mentally, so inform, but also start to reform us as we look forward to marriage or as we live through it right now. So we're going to be reading from Ephesians 5, uh, verse 22. Uh, This is a very classic passage. I'm sure you've either heard sermons about it probably a bunch of times, you've probably read it yourself a bunch of times, but we're going to be reading from Ephesians 5, verse 22 through 33. So the apostle writes to the church in Ephesus, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So there are a number of times in scripture that the Apostle Paul refers to or starts teaching about marriage. They're all very small. He actually doesn't spend and go to lengths about uh, commanding or trying to uh, equip the church with information about marriage. But of all of them, this is the one that's most thorough, most in-depth. So it's no surprise that we're going to be talking about it today and also that the church for for since forever, for centuries, has been gaining wisdom from the Apostle Paul through this text. So in, in quick summary, I just want to summarize it really quickly. Uh, the Apostle Paul, he separates, he addresses the two sexes separately. So he first speaks to the women, and it's kind of brief. And then he speaks to the men, and he gets a little bit more thorough. 
And he says to the women first, this is me kind of mashing up uh, the verses. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now as as a church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And then he addresses the husbands or the men. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. So, you know, you don't need a theological degree. It's pretty crystal clear how in, in, in over and over, in repetition, how the Apostle Paul is making it vivid that the marriage between man and wife is an image of the relationship between Christ and the church. He uses the word Christ. He refers to Jesus over and over. He says church over and over. And he relates the two of them over and over. Even so, if we can be any more clear, in verse 32, he says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So it's so, so important for us to see marriage through this paradigm. And, and I would even argue to say that our marital strife and issues and the, and the clashing and the hardship of marriage is when, whether our understanding of marriage or our actions are outside of that paradigm. But when we're thriving and doing well, it's when we're living within that. Because if the Apostle Paul says marriage between husband and wife is like the love of Christ and the church, die to each other or die to self, submit to each other, be humble in your love. If you're within those bounds, how could your marriage not thrive, right? And so when we go outside of those boundaries is when things get a little bit tricky and difficult. And so the point that he's making is that all of our marriages ought to be modeled after Jesus's love for the church. And that's my first point. In order to thrive in marriage, we must model our love after Jesus's love for the church. We must model our love after Jesus' love for the church. So we started reading in verse 22 of chapter 5. But verse 21 is a really important one. It's like almost as a really powerful header for our passage. And I want to read that. In Ephesians 5, 21, the Apostle Paul says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so why I feel like this is such an important verse, and you know, we tell you all the time in sermons and Bible studies, like each passage is not like an island, like you got to understand the context. And this very much is the case here with verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So our reverence for Jesus, our submitting to him, our following him, our discipleship is the grounds and the reason for our submitting in love to one another. So the call for women to submit to their husbands and to honor them, the call that he, in the command he gives the husbands, love your wives sacrificially, They're on the grounds of our reverence for Christ, not on who your spouse is, how happy or angry they make you, not their performance, not their, you know, meeting your expectations. There are no grounds for that in terms of our command to love. He says, love not because of your spouse, who they they are and what they do. Submit to each other in humble love because you follow the Lord, because you have reverence For Jesus. The command to humbly love your spouse is not because they deserve it, it's because you submit yourself before Jesus Christ. Uh, This week, as I was preparing this message, I was thinking about how much money and uh, goes into romantic films uh, for, I mean, particularly American films. And, uh, you know, there's two genres there's romantic 
dramas and then romantic comedies. And the reason why I think something that sets romance films apart from others is that they have kind of like what I think is like a like a double whammy combo, right? Because action movies, let's say like Michael Bay or like Avengers or whatever, like uh, Transporter, whoever, like these movies, they're just purely for entertainment value, right? It's all about like the excitement and you're engaged. But romantic films, whether they're dramas or comedies, they have the entertainment value, so they might be funny or like, you know, you know, grab your attention, but they also strike your heart, right? Jason Statham running around shooting people doesn't make you like swoon, right? Whereas romantic films, they do do that. And so it's kind of like this double whammy. And I was looking at the the movies that uh, grossed the most money. And it's, I mean, to no surprise, the romantic drama that made the most money is Titanic with $658 million. This was a little surprising to me because I figured the newer the movie, the more likely it was to gain more money, but Ghost was actually the second one. Y'all know, y'all watch Ghost, right? Whoopi Goldberg's star movie. Uh, Jerry Maguire was, was up there, and a few notches down was The Notebook, which I thought would be way up top, but The Notebook only made $81 million versus The Titanic making $658 million. The romantic comedies also made lots of money. This was a surprise to me. $176 million, this is more than Jerry Maguire, more than The Notebook, was made by There's Something About Mary, Ben Stiller. Does anybody know what the highest grossing romantic comedy might be? Guesses? No, no guess? My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Highest grossing romantic comedy of all time with 241 million. So in these movies, there's always, the reason why it's entertaining is there's a lot of volatility, right? There's nothing in a romantic movie, whether a comedy or a drama, where it's steady sales and like, just like they wake up, they make breakfast, have a good day at work, kiss, bye, and they go away. There is volatility, which makes it entertaining. And I was thinking about it. What is the recipe for a successful romantic film? And I feel like I have the perfect recipe here. Okay, so let me know if you would watch my movie, okay? So first, step one, guy and girl uh, who don't belong together end up meeting and falling in love, right? So they can't be a perfect match made in heaven. It has to be like the hoodlum and then the posh like rich girl, right? Or there has to be some sort of clash that they don't belong together, but they end up together. Step two, pretty simple. Although they have the great differences that would be a divide, love brings them together and they fall in love and everything seems perfect. So the, as a director, you make it seem as perfect as possible until step three, conflict enters in one way or another. My classic one is like, like, a, like the, 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 the bad character enters the room all like sneakily, right? And the guy, he's in love with the girl and they have a perfect romance. And then the bad girl comes and tries to seduce him and he's all like, no, like I'm faithful to her. And she's like, I don't care. She kisses him. And what happens? The main character girl walks in at the same time and he's like, no, it's not what it looks like. And she's like, no, I hate you. And she runs away, right? So there's got to be some sort of conflict and some misunderstanding happens, and then, fourth, to start to resolve and get to the end of the movie, a different source, so whether a friend or a bystander or maybe some sort of technology, not the main guy, somebody else has to reveal to the girl, hey, he really did love you. That other girl took advantage of him. And then she comes running back. They meet again. And classic, happily ever after, the movie ends. There's a reason why the movie ends there. <laughs> because nobody would watch the movies if they continued. 
What, we, what I realize that we passively receive from these movies, that whether in this model or, or others, it teaches us this. Love is volatile. Love is adrenaline and tension-packed. Love is highly conditional. Love is always hanging on a thread. Little sway one way or another is going to make it the best relationship ever or it's going to fall apart. And like I said, what it always tells us is that but there's always a happy conclusion. Now, I don't think any of us in this room would sign up to live in a, in a, in a life like that. We wouldn't want to model our lives off of the romantic films. But something that I do feel that carries over into our relationships is the conditional nature of the way that we treat each other. There is a little bit of volatility in the way that we experience romance. It seems that a lot of times the way that we treat our spouses or you know, our future spouse is, is based upon how they make us feel, whether they did something bad or not, and especially whether or not they meet our expectations. So I guess the litmus test questions to ask ourselves is, does, if your spouse or your, your husband or your wife's, uh, wife is in a bad mood, are you automatically in a bad mood? Do you find your happiness hinging on how they make you feel? Do you find yourself adjusting the way that you treat them based upon how they make you feel or how they treat you? The thing is, that is, life to us, my friends, and again, what I'm saying that we might not be able to change, but the word of God can reform our hearts, is that whether you are single or married, it doesn't matter. In fact, in fact, this kind of, goes above all relationships. You could be your friend or roommate or coworker. It doesn't matter. But especially in marriage, the scriptures reform our way of seeing our relationships and that love must be dependent on our following Jesus. Our relational health as Christians ought not to hinge on our significant other's righteousness, but rather our discipleship. It changes things. It completely changes our relationships and whether or not our marriages thrive when the way that I treat my wife is because of my discipleship and my following Jesus, not based upon their performance. Do you see that distinction and how important that is? That we love each other because you fear and have reverence for Christ, not because they are a righteous person who gets everything right and who always has their crap together. But actually, we know in fullness that we're all flawed. And every single one of us, those of you who are married, you need that type of spouse now. And those of you who aren't married yet, you're going to need that in the future. Someone who's going to love you because of their reverence for Jesus, not because of how good of a person you are. You know, I, I love how we, we sang about Jesus' love. Uh, and, you know, that the, the Jesus, your love has no bounds. And, and Myung and I were discussing a little bit of the week how we can match our songs with the, with the sermon series. And, and imagine if Jesus' love wasn't like that. Imagine if he didn't set this example for us to follow. Imagine if our songs were all about Jesus' conditional love and the sermons were like, well, I hope you're good this following week because that's going to be bad news for you. Can you imagine what that would be like? Imagine if the children's ministry were singing like, you know, Jesus loves me when I'm good, but he hates me when I'm bad. Like, sometimes he loves me. Like, it, can, you, can you imagine if they sang that? Sometimes he loves me. What would that be like? 
Seriously. But the thing is, we don't sing that stuff. We actually sing, Jesus, your love has no bounds, and we try to explain it with the feeble words we have to, exp- to express the breadth and height and width and depth of God's love for us. That's what we sing. And that's why it's beautiful how the Apostle Paul calls men and women, husbands and wives, to love each other based upon the model of Christ's. Thriving in marriage means we're going to love each other like Jesus does, not because our spouses deserve it, frankly. When your marriage is modeled off this solid, unchanging, foundational rock of Christ's love, it will thrive in a way that your shifting sand love could never get it to, that place. It's got to be upon the solid, foundational rock of Jesus So again, my first point, in order to thrive in marriage, we must model our love after Jesus' love for the church. So Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, uh, this, you know, what we're reading today in chapter 5, and actually all of it, it's not meant to be a marriage manual, right? He didn't sit there and think, oh man, like I really haven't gotten to to the Christians at Ephesus in a long time, and like I wonder how their marriages are doing, and he starts penning this letter in to get to marriage, he has a, 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 a greater purpose, and it's somewhat of like a thesis statement. For many of us, we're in school right now, or the college or grad programs, and we write lots of papers, and you have, you have to have a thesis statement, and then all the stuff that follows it, it points back to defending the thesis, right? And so in the beginning of chapter 5, I, I feel that we find Paul's thesis statement in verses 1 through 2. So the first two verses of Ephesians 5, he says, Therefore, Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Again, be imitators of God because you are his children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So he's not writing a marriage manual He's not trying to just give marriage instruction. He's saying all of us, whoever you are, are called to be an imitator of God, loving in the way that Christ loved us. And all the things that come below that, you can even flip through in your Bible, are different sorts of relationships. And marriage is just one of them. But all of them point back to the thesis, whether you are a a child to your parents, whether you are a wife to your husband, it doesn't matter. These relational things point back to this thesis, be an imitator of God, walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us. And so it reminds me, and it's such a helpful for a remi- reminder, whether you are single or married, that our major cause, our major purpose is worship. It's imitation of God and bringing him glory, not romance. So if you are single, you know, I, I wonder if I were to poll all the single people here. By the way, when I use the, I'm, today, I'm using single in like the biblical way. Like if you're dating, I'm still considering you single. So all you single folks, like, if you were to die tomorrow, right, and you would be able to, someone to ask you, oh, like, you're going to die tomorrow. What do you regret that you haven't done yet in life? Maybe some of you would say, like, oh, like, I really wanted this career, and I'm in the middle of med school right now, and, like, you know, I really wanted to, like, do, you know, practice medicine. Or some of you would say, oh, I really want to get rich, or I want to buy my first car, buy first house. Yeah, maybe those would pop up, but I would, you know, confidently guess that the majority of recip- or, uh, respondents would say, I really wish that I could have gotten married. And so I think, if I'm judging our people correctly, that most of us, our hearts kind of lead us in a way that our ultimate goal is that day. 
Our ultimate goal is to get married. Our ultimate goal is to put a ring on another person's finger and to say a vow. And for those of us who are married, it seems like all of our attention is always going to how we can grow as a, as a spouse. And of course, that's a good thing. Don't get me wrong. But that's also not your ultimate purpose. And then I, I'm not a parent yet, but I imagine it even gets heightened. Everything is about your kids and your children. And if you don't raise them well, something bad's going to happen or you're going to be a bad parent. And it's all this, you know, and all this attention goes into these wrapped up into our, as if practically the outcome of our lives is that our ultimate is either to get married or to experience the things of marriage. But I love the thesis statement brings me back. It's not that. You could never be a spouse. You could never have kids. You could be single for all your life and you could still fulfill your call 100% because we're called to be imitators of God who love, Jesus, who love others and, and Jesus in the way that he loved us. And if you get married, it's just another area. It's another arena. It's another relationship in which you can live out that calling. So we ought to really, in order to understand this correctly and in life and kind of have our lives on a trajectory that is really what the Lord wants for you, it's not to just wait, 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 wait until your marriage, until your wedding day. It's to grow as an imitator of God and then when or if you get married, to continue that path, to continue to be an imitator of God. Which leads me to my second and final point. In order to thrive in marriage, we must make the imitation of Christ our first priority. And this isn't only marriage thriving, this is life thriving, this is Christianity thriving, to be an imitator of God. One commentator says, costly sacrificial love is to be the distinguishing mark of their lives. To serve others in this way is not only to please God, it is also to, both, to imitate both God and Christ. Let me read that again. To serve others in this, oh, costly sacrificial love is to be the distinguishing mark of our lives. To serve others in this way is not only to please God, it is also to imitate both God and Christ. So our love ought to be costly and sacrificial because that's our calling. So in summary, in order to thrive in marriage, we must model our love after Jesus' love for the church. Our love can't be conditional. It's not based upon your partner. It's not based upon yourself and the way that you change. It's based upon your reverence for Christ who loved us unconditionally. And point two, in order to thrive in marriage, we must make the imitation of Christ our first priority. Our major purpose in life is to grow into Christ's likeness and to worship, not to get married or to be a married person. And our love ought to be costly and sacrificial in the way that Jesus' love was that for us. So in the way that the Apostle Paul addressed the two sexes separately, I want to do the same thing and just first speak to the ladies and to say wives or future wives, if you're not there yet, overcome your husbands with humble service and honor them in the way you desire to honor the Lord. Imitate Christ Jesus in your humble submission. And to the husbands or future husbands, utterly exhaust yourselves of love for your wife in the way that Jesus loves the church. Imitate Christ Jesus in your sacrificial love. Just because I'm a guy, I'm going to repeat that one more time. Husbands, utterly exhaust yourselves of love for your wife. 
See, the place that we see the greatest display of love that ever happened, that the Apostle Paul has already pointed to, that I've brushed up upon, is the cross, right? It's there where we get this understanding of what unconditional love looks like. Because Jesus, knowing full well his path and what his destiny would end up being, he chooses to lower himself and give his life up for people who are so sinful and undeserving. So at the cross, we see this picture that I hope that all of us just like passionately long for to see in our relationships. And for those of us who are married, especially make a commitment to renewing today. No merit, nothing earned, nothing deserved, just freely given is the great love of Jesus And I love the fact that this awesome picture of the gospel good news is what the Apostle Paul says. You know what looks like that or ought to look like that? Marriage. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Wives, humbly submit to your husbands in the way that the church submits to Christ. It's that picture, and many of you are not yet there, but you'll experience it one day if the Lord provides, of this closest possible experience and analogy of being fully known with all of your ugliness and flaws, yet being unconditionally loved. So we, you know, I'm hoping that we as a church, we grow, we pray, and we work towards a life in which Jesus' word and his actions and his example do not just cognitively inform our brains, but start to actually take form and shape our hearts so that we live this out. To not just inform our living, but to reform our loving. So let's watch this last part. Cafe, say you will. Mm-hmm. Say you will. Mm-hmm. Marry me. Mm-hmm. Now imagine that you're in my living room and you just saw that and it just ended. There's something that I would like to ask all of us to commit to that I really feel like this is not just an individual sermon for you to go and take home and to hope for or to work on with your spouse today, but something that we can grow as together as a church. I want to ask all of you single folks to go ahead and ask those questions. In fact, do it more. Say, hey, how did you meet? Hey, how did you propose? Hey, can I see your wedding video? But what I'm asking all of us to commit to is to not stop there to ask more questions. The video comes to a close. It wraps up. You're like, ah, that was so nice. Thanks for letting me watch it. And then look them in the eye and say, since your wedding, how have you been loving like Jesus? Since your wedding, how have you been imitating Christ? How are the both of you living out your vows daily? And I know all the married people are like, shut up. <laughs> Don't say that. But we need it. Right, married people? Can I get an amen, married people? I see some of you up there. We need it. This is how we're going to grow together as a church. Single people, I'm, I'm being honest. Uh, I, mean, I mean, yeah, yeah. Single people, let me talk to you. We, the married folks, we need you. I know you think that you, you're the ones that need us, which is true too. 
but we also need you. I think we have this kind of culture at our church where it's always like this one-way trajectory, like it goes younger, older, 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 oldest, and it's only fed into this way, but we need you too. We need you to make us commit further. We need you to challenge us and to bring up those questions. We need you in asking as you, as you, when you ask us to help us navigate your life, we need to be, we can't be full of crap, right? And I want to use the other word. We need to actually believe and know and practice what we say. And it challenges us. So I'm just asking all of us to grow in this way. And then married people on the flip side, they need us too. They need us to live by example. They need us to welcome them into our homes and for them to be able to see with their own eyes what marriage looks like in the clunky things too, not just in the, the polished refinement. We all need each other. And so whether it's asking these questions or spending more time with each other and getting intertwined and the single people to ask the older for advice and, and, and whether, whatever it may be, as I close, I just want to challenge us to ask those questions, to let the video come to a close, but then to take it further. Because if all of us, whether today or for our future marriage, want to thrive and we want to be imitators of God and whether we want to model our love and our marriage after Jesus' love, we're going to need each other to do it. So together, Cornerstone, as a church, let's commit to this. Let's commit to modeling our love after Jesus. Let's commit to being imitators of Christ first and foremost as our life's greatest priority. And then let's commit to doing it together because we need each other. Let's pray. God, there is so much beauty and joy and like, Uh, awesomeness, if that's a word, to marriage. But there's also a lot of tricky stuff. There's a lot of hardship. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of misunderstanding. And so, God, with both of these things in mind, that we can experience this full and awesome joy, but also that we can experience great heartbreak, we come before you humbly, submissive before you, our God and King, and to asking that you would help us resemble your son more. Lord, I pray for the current people in this room who are married, whether they are doing super well or super not. We ask, Lord God, that they would, they would be reminded by, this, by your word and reformed and shaped by your word that it is our reverence for you, Lord, that calls us to love unconditionally. And remind us, Lord God, that it is our call to be imitators of Jesus to love in the way that you love. Father, for all the single people in the room, as they look forward to that day, as they anticipate if you were to provide them a spouse for their future, I pray, Lord God, that they would be reminded that not only is the greatest call not to get married, but to be a disciple, but it's also the greatest joy God, would you, in your Holy Spirit's power, nestle deeply inside of our single friends' hearts and souls that their greatest joy in life is you, not another person. And finally, God, I pray and I ask, I, I, I come before you humbly petitioning these things, asking, Lord, that you would help us to help each other. That we would be a church that isn't just thinking of ourselves and isn't living individualistically, We're just worried about me. 
but we're feeding and blessing and, and challenging and strengthening each other as a church. Young or old, it doesn't matter. Experienced, un, uh, unexperienced, it doesn't matter. Like everybody together, serving, sharpening, strengthening each other. Won't you make us that church? So as we close this relationship series, Lord, and look forward to uh, others, we're grateful for what you've done so far. And we trust, Lord, that you will bear much fruit because your word and only your word has that power to do so. So would you do that mightily, Lord, in our lives? We open our hearts and, and just come before you asking that you would do that. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.